The Lord be with you. It's a big day today. We're moving on to a new handout. And you'll notice I was so excited about the prospect of a new handout, I found pictures, which I'm sure I broke a few copyright laws. I don't know how they feel about that. So since I didn't charge you for these, I figure it doesn't matter what I take pictures of. But um, And I actually hope that we get through this section. It's only five verses, so he set the bar low today. Uh, to get a running start into uh, verse 35, uh, just to kind of back up a few verses from, from last week's section. We were, uh, I'll say, approximately 33 of, of chapter 12. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And verse 34 really gets to the heart of um, what Jesus is, is trying to do here. He's, he's shining a light on the idols that we have. And this is, he does it in, I mean, it's in the context of money. He's talking about money bags and possessions. And this entire string of, of uh, studies that we've done the last month has all been uh, really hitting on money and possessions and the, and the risk that, that, that they become our gods and, and what that would do to us. But what greatly summarizes it is wherever your treasure is, like whatever you treasure, that's where your, that's where your faith is. It's becoming your God. So that which you, as, as we learn in the first commandment, whatever we fear, love, and trust in most is our God or an idol. Um, but then also, I mean, just think about wh where your treasure is in the sense of wh what do you spend your money on? So if you're having trouble figuring out, okay, what, what, what has become an idol in my life? Not necessarily contrasting it to how much money I put in the offering plate, because we talked about that as being all the money you give to God isn't limited to what you put in the plate. But uh, the idea is you've got, if, if your, your priorities, think about how twisted your priorities could be if you're like, I don't care about not, not just our congregation's life or the greater, the greater mission of Christianity, but also just your neighbors in your immediate neighborhood who need, who need you, other homeless people and so forth, all the, all the almsgiving type generosity that, that is asked of the Christian, how much we, we prioritize that in contrast to how much we spend on our vacations or our retirement, right? I mean, I think retirement's a great picture there because you're like, this is in the context, remember the guy, Jesus kind of led into this with the guy storing up money in barns, not money, but uh, he had all this, he had a great crop year. And so he's, he's kept building more barns. So that's the idea of the savings aspect of it, as though I'm going to be here forever. And so I need to make sure I've got a lot of, a lot of comfort while I'm here. And really, so he's putting all of his money into his retirement versus thinking about the eternal things and the needs of my neighbor. So, um, if, if you are convicted by this for your idolatry, the fact that we look to money for our, our, uh, our comfort, we, have our, we trust in our money, we think, I can be generous as I'll get out. If I, once I know I have enough for me and my family long-term, then I'll start thinking about everybody else. That's kind of backwards, as our, as our Lord sets it. So that convicts you, which it does, because that's what the law does. Uh, good, repent. So Jesus is turning us away from our idols. 
turning us, setting us, trying to set us free from looking to our money and our possessions as some kind of saving thing that can ultimately provide for us or satisfy our, our need for uh, something to hope in and trust in. So after significantly shattering this idol of money, we get into today's section, which is really seemingly disconnected. Uh, verse 35, stay dressed for action. That's the handout for you. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. We'll pause there. Because uh, it's kind of a, we get these two semi-parables of these servants who are waiting on their master to come back from a wedding. And starting with verse 39, it actually talks about a master Whose, whose house gets broken into. So same general theme, but um, I just want to attack them separately. So your first question on your handout, look at that, jumping into the handout right away. It's a new day. <laughs> this section addresses the disciples' posture of waiting for the return of Christ. How do these warnings follow logically from the previous section's warnings regarding earthly possessions? So just Jesus has been railing against our, our tendency to make gods out of the things of this world and put our, put our treasure in these earthly things and have our heart be worshiping our money. And then he seems to jump right to the return. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. They think this through. How would this follow? Does it follow? But I think, what we, I think the helpful way to look at it is it obviously follows, because even though there's a section break with that heading, you must be ready. And if, you, if you're looking in your Bible, is anybody even looking? At <laughs> there's a Bible out there? Uh, if you see in the Bible, there's usually a paragraph break, but this is all given to be one context, you know. So Jesus is talking about keeping your lamps burning, waiting for his return, right as he's just finished talking about don't make gods out of these possessions of this world. So it's this picture of, this, this wonderfully contrasted picture of staying versus going. Am I, if I'm going to stay here forever and this is it, then why not make all the barns? But if this is not my home, this is like a temporary dwelling. I'm just here for a bit. And like this is the reading from a few weeks ago, like make friends for yourselves with unrighteous mammon. Like even the money that we have, like you don't really need it. And so most people like at the end of life and it's really clear that, all right, well, I certainly can't take you with me. What do you do with all your money right before you die? Do you, do you just, hey, put it in the casket, please? Of course not. What do you do with it? You give it away. And it's a joyful thing to give away, to be, to be generous, because you're actually disconnected from it at that point. You're like, it, it can't actually, it didn't take away my cancer. The cancer won this one, but I still have all this money so I can bring a little joy and, and help people around me. Well, it's nice to kind of have that mindset about your money all the way through, that it's not actually going to be able to cure me. It's, it's a way to feed my family and care for my neighbors. And the Lord gives us each differently, you know, but as we're able, we're able to be generous. But the idea is that we're not staying, we're going. 
And that's why this transition to stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, I'm coming back. Stay dressed for action if you're a, um, what's that? The, the movie with, uh, uh, Beth was telling me about this movie, the, the, um, the fashion guru lady. Remember that scene when she's coming, the very like, opening scene, she's coming into the office and what's the guy say? Gird your, gird your loins. This is actually the Greek here. Verse 35, stay dressed for action is gird your loins. And what does that mean? It's kind of a weird thing to say. Well, the idea was, and in fact, it's the same from the Hebrew, it's the same picture as at the Passover. When the Lord gives the Passover, um, remember the context of the Passover. What are they getting ready to do? They're getting out of Egypt. So it's like, pack all, get your suitcases, put them over there by the door, get the blood on the doorpost, eat your food in haste, though. It is fast food. <laughs> but like, so go ahead and put your sandals on, tie your shoelaces, and gird your loins, which is like, think about the, it's kind of what we should, we should start saying that to our acolytes. So a lot of, a lot of our acolytes, when they're picking out their robes, are like too long. And so if they try to step up into the chancel too quickly, what do they do? Yeah, they step on their, they step on their robe and fall. It's very difficult to run in a dress, I assume. <laughs> Fortunately, I can say I assume. Even in our robes, like the robes we wear for church, they're, not meant, they're obviously not meant for running. They're meant for covering us up. Um, so what do you do? So you kind of take, uh, what you'll see is like, the, the per, we, have these, we have these albs. You sacristans will appreciate this reference. All these albs that the sacristans wear, they're all various sizes because obviously we have different heights of, of guys who help with communion. So we have, we have to have enough like albs for like Matt Crock or Chris Johnson. I just mentioned two people who are no longer here. It's just sad. A moment. Uh, really tall sacristans, but we obviously don't have like an endless supply. Uh, so sometimes we have, we don't have enough like short albs for our shorter sacristans. And so we can't put James Blasius in a Matt Croc alb. So what do you do? You have to gird your loins. You see this, like you pull, you have to pull the robe out and kind of t flip it over. You know, there's alb everywhere here. Where's James? <laughs> Well, that's the idea, though. So you want your feet to be free from, for running because this is this picture of, so that it's not uh, this complacency in the Christian life, but it's this, it's this going, not just going that we're getting ready to go when, the, when Christ returns, but it's also a gospel that's meant to be taken with us into our vocations, out into the world. Um, being, so be ready for action. And that's the context of keep your lamps burning. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm gonna... Let it shine. What's the idea? This, what, what are the lamps that are burning if not the gospel? And what does it mean to keep your lamps burning? Well, in part, it's keeping your faith. But it's also, what's the light? Uh, and constantly in, in chapter 12, even in, in, pre, in previous chapters, it's always been this picture of having this light be a thing that chases away the darkness to the benefit of others. So sharing that light with those around you. Go. Don't just hold it to yourself. You're dressed and ready for action, ready for not just action, but specifically with Passover in mind, what, they were getting ready to be redeemed, saved, salvation. The, the picture of being taken through the Red Sea into the promised land. So that's us. We're ready to go. 
Jesus coming back is the same as Israel getting out of the, out of the bondage in Egypt into the promised land, uh, equipped with the lamps of the gospel, uh, staying in the faith. Let's see. And be like men. Oh, one more. So uh, stay dressed for action instead of being tangled up. Think about this. The, the, picture, the word tangled I ran across, I think it's helpful. So when you're girding your loins, it's so it frees you up for action. But when you don't, and you're, tripping, you're constantly tripping over yourself, you're getting tangled up in the mess. Notice the, since it's following immediately after all these possessions, the tangling that our possessions can do to us, how it tangles up our priorities, it tangles up our lives, and how we spend our time and everything like that. So it's like, don't, don't get tangled up in these things because you're not staying here. Get ready to go. Be like men who are waiting. So to the disciples, that's you guys. Be like those who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So where is the master gone? To a wedding? And what's the picture? I mean, this is like, what happens at a wedding, especially in a Jewish context, not the Southern Baptist context? Have you ever been to a Southern Baptist wedding, by the way? This is like my childhood. I didn't know what a cool wedding was until my own. They, they serve alcohol to weddings? There's dancing? <laughs> I remember going, it's like, it'd be all the lights on, table, lemonade, and cookies, and everybody's just kind of standing there awkwardly. Great party. So heaven's like this? Great. <laughs> uh, but no, so the picture of the, like the Jewish wedding, it's a, it's a family reunion. It's everybody together, big party, celebration, because we're rejoicing in this wonderful thing. So that's where, that's where the master has gone, and it's, it's a multiple day occasion. So it's not just in our context of you have the wedding at four and then they go take pictures and they're back for the reception for a couple hours and everybody kind of heads off to the hotel and leaves the next day. But this is a multi-day affair. And they don't know exactly how long it's going to last. It's probably in part dictated by, what do you think, in the context? Kind of the context, how, does the wedding how long does the wedding celebration last? Until the, until the wine runs out, right? Well, that's, that's Cana, right? So we don't know how long it's going to last. We'll see. Um, and so, but so the, the idea is not knowing exactly how long till he comes back, but staying in the faith, knowing that he's going to come back all along. Um, we'll, I think we're going to circle back on what it means to stay waiting and stay in the faith. Let's see. As he comes back from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him once he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants, verse 37, whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. So he's been at a wedding, he's been at a party. And then when he comes back, notice the shift. He comes back not to be served, but to serve. He brings the party back. So, instead, so Jesus is at the party, and then wherever he comes, there the party is. So he comes back, and the celebration continues, and he does all the serving uh, to stay awake. How do we stay awake? And what would it mean to fall asleep? That's our, uh, the second question on your handout. A life of, what does it mean to stay awake in your, <laughs> in your vocations? What, is it, what, what would not waiting and sleeping look like? So Jesus says, stay awake and wait for me. So what is the opposite? Let you think about that. What do you think? Yes, ma'am. 
Yeah, so a couple of things on that. One, one is like we're always tempted toward this, this hopeful expectation that God is going to actually fix the mess that we're in now. Like that he's going to fix the political scene and fix the economic scene and fix the moral scene in the schools and all the, all the things that we identify rightly as darkness in our current world that brings so much despair to people. Um, so, we, so we're kind of like praying for God to, if our, if our only hope is that God's going to come and fix this, then we're putting our hope in the wrong place. So he actually died not to fix this temporally, but to actually fix it eternally for us. So for him, it's, he says, he doesn't say, um, fear not in this world, you will have no tribulation to his disciples. He says, you will have tribulation, fear not, I am with you. We are in the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23, fear not, for thou art with me. Not fear not, because my sheep don't deal with the darkness. No, no, the darkness certainly comes. Uh, kind of what I'm thinking is, with the, this idea of not waiting. So like, if, 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 I'm, if I'm falling asleep, what's this picture of falling asleep? Some might argue that it's, don't, don't get stuck in a life of sin. Don't get wrapped up in a life of sin. What's the problem though? <laughs> what, what is a sinner except wrapped up in a life of sin, right? So what's the... What's the, the, characterizing, the characterizing feature for the Christian is not a lack of sin, but repentance, which is toward faith, right? So, I mean, faith is a very important part of this. So, what repentance is the identification of my sin for what it is and my bondage to it and my longing to be rid of it, that I would be turned to Jesus and be forgiven. So to have my lamps burning to stay awake in this Christian life as a as the symbol, the simultaneous saint and sinners that we are, is this ongoing recognition that I'm, I'm in this sinful life and I don't, I'm repenting from it, turning away from it, striving against it, turning constantly back to Jesus for forgiveness. The wonderful comfort here though is, that's, that's not something that you do on your own. If it were, then salvation wouldn't be all about Jesus. It would be Jesus plus how much you're willing to put in on the repentance side of things. And that is no longer grace. That's a little bit of Jesus plus you, you've killed all of grace. So this is where like in the third article, the creed of the, in the small catechism, as we unfold, like what does the Holy Spirit do? I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gift, sanctified and kept, kept me in the one true faith. So the Holy Spirit's the one who actually gives the gift of faith and keeps us, sustains the faith, right? So we, we acknowledge that the Holy Spirit's the one who's doing all the keeping us awake. He's the, he's the coffee, if you will, uh, that keeps us awake. But how does the Holy Spirit work? Through the word, which is right, which you, which exactly what you said, right? So God is going about this, which is the, the, the word is also the light, the lightens, and that's keep your lamps burning. So as we're in this, as we're waiting in this darkness, longing for this to be re removed from this valley of darkness, longing for our master to, to come, to stay awake is to live from the Lord's word, which doesn't mean, it, 
it doesn't mean that there's like a, a time quota, like your time card of how much time you have to put in, because now we're playing the Pharisee game. How much, I know you came to Bible study today and you're in church this morning, but really, what's more important? So some of you are going to go back and watch football later today, but really, the, God's more important, so you can't do that. And uh, there's some other stuff too, like you probably want to cut your grass, cut one more time before the season ends, but you can't do that because that's less important. So all of a sudden, we've trimmed away everything from this life except for reading the Bible, now I've become a Pharisee. To live from the Word is not to say you only have the Word, but it's to always be living from the promises, right? So just as a husband and wife, like always living within the love with their spouse, it's, it's with them everywhere they go. It, it actually energizes a lot of things that they do. So to be, to be living from God's Word is to live as one who knows every second of my day, everywhere that I go, I stand before a loving father as one who has been justified in Christ, not because of my works. Think about how freeing that is. That I stand before God as one is fully redeemed by Christ and nothing that I do today is gonna mess that up. It's so freeing. So now I'm driven not by the law, like I have to keep God happy. I have to put in my, punch my time card of how many, how many times I got to read the Bible and how many prayers I got to give and all this kind of stuff. But rather it's, it's living in this joy of the gospel every day. And obviously we want to be reading the Bible. We want to be reading the Bible, but that's, it's no longer like this thing that I have to do because that's what I have to do. But it's the same reason why I like to give my girls a kiss at night before I, before I go to bed. Because... I actually love them and it's good, right? So you think when you start to see the scriptures like that and, and for what, so knowing that the Holy Spirit is working through this thing to keep me awake, it's a, it's a, free, a freeing and joyful thing, but we don't want to turn it into some kind, of a, some kind of a law or checklist or something like that where if I don't do my, my daily Bible reading then I'm somehow uh, going, to, going to fall away. But it's just, it's an important thing. So Jesus is giving this as a warning, which by the way, why is, he, why is Jesus even saying this parable? So this, like, the fear that should come into your conscience, stay awake, don't fall asleep. Wouldn't that be terrible if you were asleep when Jesus comes back? So stay awake, stay in the faith, stay in the word. What's it do to you? As you're saying, yeah, I should, I should probably take this more seriously. <laughs> I should actually read my Bible. I should actually stop thinking that this life is going to last forever, that I'm staying and not going. Right? So that's repentance brought to you by not you're really, really, really wanting it, but by God's word. That's what he's doing in the parables. He's hitting us with his law and saying, stop thinking this stuff is going to last forever. I'm coming back. So stay, stay dressed for action. Be, be living, in this, living in this waiting posture is a freeing thing. It's knowing, it's knowing that he's coming back any day, or whether, it's, whether he actually comes back in his return or I am actually called home to him, it's gonna kinda of look the same to me, right? So when's the last, the last day, whether the last day or my last day, it's me being taken into the presence of God, and that's all good for me. So in the time we have here, I'm not thinking I have to make God happy with some laws, but I'm actually set free to use my stuff to love my neighbor. It's God's anyway. He just kind of gave it to me to give away. It's, the government's good at this. It's, it's fun to give away other people's money. Ah. 
on the back of your handout, that's why we, we talk about the staying awake. How are, how are we to wait and stay awake and keep our lamps burning? That's this constantly living from the Lord's gifts, rejoicing in his, rejoicing in his gifts. Uh, and again, to, to give one more analogy, if I'm a Jew living in like Galilee, so way north of Jerusalem, it's like, I don't know how many hundreds of miles down to, down to the temple back in the first century. So I, knew, I know I'm supposed to go down to the temple and be rejoicing all the sacrifices, but I got, this, I got this farm and all the sheep and I got my family and all this. And so if I'm going down to the temple every Saturday, I'm not gonna have a business because it's actually gonna take me a full week to get down there and back, right? So it's not like, See, they don't go down there all the time. They're only going down the main festivals. But in between, when they get to the temple, are they not? Are they cut off from the faith? Of course not. They're always living from that, living from that gift, living from the salvation that they have, knowing that they have a Lord, rejoicing in Him, hearing the Word, speaking the Word to their children, right? Passing on what they've what they've received. So letting it be the main thing in your in your life, putting your treasure there, putting your heart there also. Let's see. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. So as the master serves us, think about, I think that's the number five on our handout. The master serves the servants. In fact, that's the he will dress himself for service. That's the same devil wears Prada line. He will gird his loins. He's going to dress himself for service, and he's bringing the party to us when he comes and serves us. So that's not just, though, think about that. So it's not just the final return when, when Jesus actually comes back and, this, and serves us, but think about how we talk about the coming of Christ in Advent, the multiple comings of Jesus. So he came once, he was born in the manger, he will come again in the last day, but in the meantime, he comes to us, now, through word and sacrament, which is precisely what, what do we call our worship? The divine service. So whose service is it? The divines. So God is serving us. We are Mary and not Martha, right? We come, to, we come before the feet of Jesus and simply receive his gifts. We are served by him, which is why, going back to pastors wearing dresses, in the, in the LCMS way, not the ELCA way. <laughs> Let the reader understand. But, but like the, the robes that we wear, the idea is that covering up, covering up the person, covering up the man, except for the things that are necessary. Like, I, okay, I need, my, I need my mouth not to be covered because I'm supposed to preach the gospel. I need my hands not to be covered so I can actually deliver the Lord's gifts, Right? I can't, my feet can't be covered because I have to walk to you. But everything else, we want to cover up any, any kind of individuality because the pastor is, as we say in confession, in the stead and by the command, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, which means I'm standing in his place. Jesus is serving you. So um, which pastor baptized you? I don't even remember. It was Jesus baptized me. He used some, some sinner's hands to do it. Who gave you the Lord's Supper? Right? 
Jesus. It's his gift, and he works through. Who forgives your sins? As, you, as we come to church, and, and uh, right, right off the bat, confessing our sins to God, and then having some guy who's not God turn around and say, I forgive you all of your sins. It's because I'm not forgiving anybody's sins. It is Jesus who wants you to know that he forgives your sins. That's the whole idea of the office of the ministry, and that's why we cover up the man, right, with as much stuff as possible. Even more, like, we, obviously there's more stuff that we could buy, but we got, like, the chasuble to make a distinction amongst, which, which is the big, the big colorful thing that we got a couple years back. Uh, it makes a distinction between who is the one who's celebrating the Lord's Supper and doing confession and absolution. Who's the main guy today? If I want my sins forgiven, where do I go? Find a guy with a stole. Find a guy with a chasuble. He's going to forgive my sins, right? Because that's where Jesus is delivering the gifts. And so that's why it's a divine service. We come and we're served by God, and he brings the party to us. That's a, in, uh, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, holy, 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 right? Right there as we get into the, into the, the Lord's Supper part of the service. Heaven is crashing into earth in a very good way. So we're joined together with the angels and archangels that we cannot see and all the company of heaven, which means grandma and grandpa, my spouse, the child that was, all these kind of people who are rejoicing in heaven gathered around this throne. We're worshiping at the same throne. It's just a lot less visually impressive. We try to make it more visually impressive. Like we'd like to be able to say we're, we're giving it our best to make, the, to make the sanctuary look otherworldly, right? It's not trying to look like the auditorium down the street. It is, it is heaven on earth. And it's heaven on earth because this is where Jesus is, truly. This is where Jesus comes and he's bringing the party. The same party that's going on in heaven, it's like somebody cracked the door and said, hey, stick, stick your head in here for just a second. Just the one dance, but you gotta go back. That's a wonderful picture of what's going on. Uh, and I'll, let me skip back to number four. The Son of Man will come to judge the living and the dead when not expected. So that's what we say at the end of the Nicene Creed. He will come to judge both living and the dead. How are the Lord's disciples to view his return and how is the return of Jesus often mistaught? So this entire section of, him, of us waiting and him coming back is the return of Christ. So and it, multiple verses here, and it's going to become the theme in the, in the lectionary, in the readings of the church. As you, as you recall, like the, in the lectionary, the readings, when we get to the end of the Pentecost season, that's the end of the season of the church, right before we get into Advent. The theme is always, it's all like the, the 10 virgins, the wise and foolish virgins, the sheep and the goats, all these end times judgment parables. Uh, and it's like this, and it's, they're all kind of scary, and they all end the same way. This is the gospel of the Lord. Gospel? What? What is gospel? Because Jesus is coming back, and for those who are in Christ, this is good news, even if it's a scary picture. But when we have something like this, we got this unexpected return of Christ, even, and maybe to, I'll keep running with the, the next section here, but, but know this. Well, let me... I'm all over, the, all over the place, I apologize. Verse 38, if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, from the Jewish counting, the second watch would be between 10 and 2 a.m. and the third watch would be between 2 and 6 a.m. So in the middle of the night, if he comes back, 
Which, I mean, if you're at a wedding, when do you get back? It depends on how good the party is, I guess. But you're coming back in the, middle of the, in the middle of the night. Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known, so now he shifts parables in verse 39. It's a different parable. If the master of the house, so not the guy who went to the party and came back, but now we're talking about an individual homeowner. If the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. He would have just turned the lights on and got a shotgun ready or whatever. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So like a thief coming in the middle of the night, you don't actually, what makes the thief effective is no one is expecting him to be coming, right? Comes in the middle of the night. But there, notice that now we got this negative connotation. So the two, so first it's a, it's a picture of a master coming back from a wedding and his return is joy, right? But now it's, the thief coming back. And it's not joy, but I mean, how would you feel about a thief breaking into your house in the middle of the night? Would that, would that bring joy to you? I guess if you have a Rottweiler and a gun and you're ready, waiting, it's gonna be great. But no, that's not the idea. It's, it's, meant to be, it's meant to bring this kind of fear, like dread. And that's, and that's also got this, this sense of the return of Christ. The idea here is we don't know. You don't know when he's gonna return. But for us who are in Christ, it does not need to bring, it does not bring dread. Now, my question there in verse uh, number four is in the return, um, how are the disciples to view his return? So if you've, depending on your church body background and so forth, you, you can hear this taught in a variety of different ways. The Left Behind series of the 90s was, was big on this. And you get these kind of different, there are certainly different pictures of the end times return of Christ. So you get like these millennial views and the amillennial views and the post-millennial views and all pre-millennialist and is there a pre-trib and post-trib and if you got like a, you come, I, got, I just tickled a nerve for the evangelicals there. I'm, I'm speaking your language. This is all the weird stuff. So it's like these, these different formulas that have come back and they're all ultimately trying to kind of predict this this just gonna, Jesus is gonna come back and some, in some of the pictures it's like Jesus comes back and he call, he's, it's a secret return. And he, like a vacuum cleaner, sucks up all the, all the believers and leaves all the other residue behind. And then there's all these like severe punishment and testing and trials. And then there, you get like another chance to try to, to jump on the Christian bandwagon. And if you miss that try, then you're, then you're gonna suffer eternally. It's like, this is a different picture than the scripture where Jesus actually comes, he comes back. And when he comes back, it's, it, while it's unexpected, it is well known when he returns. There's trumpets and loud angels are returning. It's a big, it's a big to-do. And as Matthew puts it, I believe, I think it's Matthew, when Jesus returns, it's all these things that seem to be causing fear, like the heavens are on fire, all these kind of massive things. And then we are to look up, rejoice, because your redemption is drawing near. So for those who are in Christ, the return, of, the return of Christ is in fact this great cause for rejoicing because ultimately all the, all the sin that should bring me despair and dread has been taken away and given to Jesus and he died for it. So now when he comes back, it's the parable of the sheep and the goats and I've been given all of the good works of my, of my Jesus and he's taken away all my sins. 
So I need not fear the last day. But if in your theological system, I'm trying to motivate you to make a decision for Jesus and rededicate your life to, church, to, to Christ and turn your life around, then I'm going to take the end, the end times changes. And it's like this, you know, Jesus is coming back and you, you don't want to suffer eternally, do you? So you better, now would be a good time for you to jump on, jump on the ship with us. So it's like this, there's this, this fear, there's a scary, fearful picture of Jesus coming back. And now I'm trying to scare you into faith or scare you into turning your life around, um, which is not how the gospel works. That's not how love works. I, my, I don't try to scare my children into loving me more. So how, how would I accomplish that? Right? They can, like, I, can, they, I can scare them into respecting me or at least pretending to, but actual love is not brought about by fear. So the gospel is brought as this wonderful picture of Jesus dying for sinners, only sinners, right? It's the sick who need a doctor that Jesus comes for. And so if you're sinful, then you qualify. So you believe in Jesus? Yes. You believe Jesus died for sinners? Yes. Are you a sinner? Yeah. Jesus comes back. He's coming for me. It's great news. Except for those outside of Christ. It is a scary picture. And so that kind of cuts through a lot of the, there's lots of different maybe teachings on that. And a lot of it is often drawn from the book of Revelation, certain passages that can be taken, some are taken figuratively, some are taken literally. Uh, And either way, it's, it's pretty inconsistent on what the end times may or may not look like. And I try to there's a lot of things we can say for sure, and there's, there's a lot of things we can't say for sure. And the more there is doubt, there is uncertainty, and, and that brings despair. So what the Lord wants to do is remove all this doubt and despair and give us actually comfort. So how's it going to play out on the last day? Why do you care? I'll be fine. I'm covered in Jesus. Did Jesus die for me and say it is finished? Did he mean it? When he said it is finished? Or do you say it is finished as long as you hold up your end of the deal when I, when I come back on the last day? If you get the formula right and calculate the right stuff and figure out in your head when, when is Jesus actually coming back and then make all these appropriate pre- preparations or whatever, right? It's all this despairing thing. But it is unknown. So when you have anybody who tries to come to you, I mean, literally I, this week I had a, somebody put a, a, a flyer in my mailbox that carefully calculates the return of Christ based on what's happening in Russia and, and uh, all these different things. And they got these texts from Daniel and Revelation and all kind of lines up in just the right way that this next election is when Jesus will come back. And it's like these scary pictures of hell and all this. It's like, well, that's interesting. Well, thank you for predicting it because you just prolonged the Jesus. I mean, if you think you know what it is, that just says for sure that he's not coming that time because it says it's coming when it's not expected. So if you're expecting him, it's not coming. So if you want Jesus to never come back, keep expecting him to come back. <laughs> but it, so, uh, but, so this, the, un, the, the, uh, the, um, the fact that we don't know when he's coming back is just the truth that Jesus himself doesn't know his return, but it's not meant to cause us great despair. So if you ever hear the teaching of the return of Christ in some kind of way that brings fear, 
flee to, I think it's Revelation 4. Uh, the lamb on his throne, the, the lamb who is slain and yet on the throne. And just ask this simple question, like why? So why, if, if this teaching of the last time, the end days, is trying to get me to do something else that would ensure for me salvation, then Jesus did not do it all on the cross, did he? Does that make sense? If there's anything left on my side of the account to do, then Jesus didn't do it all. So when we think about the last days like that, that Jesus who comes has already paid all the debts and he's just coming to swoop us into eternal life. Um, the Son of Man comes in an hour you did not expect. Yeah, I talked about that. So this living in a life of expectation is not paralyzing, but it's actually freeing and energizing. So in the same way as, remember the movie, um, The Bucket List with Morgan Freeman and um, Jack, the non-golfer, Jack Nicholson, Jack, Nich Jack Nicholson. Uh, the whole idea of that movie is, all right, so I know I'm dying in X amount of days and I've got all this money to spend. And so you just go like live your life. But for them, unfortunately, it was often quite selfishly but the whole idea of living in this eager expectation of the return of Christ is not, not causing this paralyzing fear. If Jesus, Jesus could come back today, we better like batten down the hatches and go into the basement and hide in fear. But actually, go. You've girded your loins. Get going. Let's get moving. Get after it. You've been set free from the law. There's this wonderful joy. You're set free from your possessions. They're not going to save you. So now we're, we're living every day waiting for Jesus, but it's not paralyzing. It's in fact freeing. So now I can live without fear of this return of Christ, but now I'm living sharing in the joys of eternal life now. Nothing that this world can do to me can take that away from me. Uh, my stuff isn't going to help me eternally. I can use, I mean, feed, feed my family, take care of what I get, get, put a coat on the kids and everything. But now I got all this stuff. I help my neighbor as, I, as I'm given opportunity, right? But that's not because the law told you to, because you actually love your neighbor and you can't take the stuff with you anyway. So it's like taking that, taking the bucket list, I have one month of life to live perspective of my stuff and just pulls it back and lets us kind of try to go through life that way. And we don't do it. Because the fact is, we don't actually believe that Jesus is coming back. Do we? And that's our sin. We say, oh yes, I believe. Okay, good. Why are you still sinning? Oh, you, because we sin because we don't actually believe like we should. So our sin is evidence of our unbelief. See? And so we hear the law that kind of turns us away from our life of sin, running back to Jesus. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, strengthen my faith, forgive my sins. I'm, but I'm living in this eager expectation of your return. And so we pray as we do before meals, come Lord Jesus, right? Come to this meal, but also return. Pull us out of this valley of sorrow to yourself in heaven. Uh, lastly, uh, just a couple minutes left, I put on here in the context of the master who returns to serve and not be served, is this um, is captured beautifully in the introduction to Lutheran worship. Just put a little picture on there for you if you're, if you're a 1980s Lutheran. And you, so this is our new hymn book, the Lutheran service book is the, is the burgundy one. Um, 
But the, from 1986 until 2006, that was kind of the main hymnal in usage, and it was super duper confusing, and I think the hymnal was terrible. But the introduction to the hymnal was fantastic. So if you have one of these blue books lying around your house, rip out the introduction and throw the rest of the book in the fire. No. <laughs> but here's the, so uh, Norman Nagel is a well-respected theologian. He just died a couple years ago. Um, speaking on what worship is. Our Lord speaks and we listen. His word bestows what it says. Faith that is born from what is heard acknowledges the gifts received with eager thanks, thankfulness and praise. Music is drawn into this thankfulness and praise, enlarging and elevating the adoration of our gracious giver, God. So starting with him coming to us, him speaking to us, giving us his word, and then our thankfulness and praise is, is coming in response to that. Saying back to him what he has said to us, that is confess. We repeat what is most true and sure. Most true and sure is his name, which he put upon us with the water of our baptism. We are his. This we acknowledge at the beginning of the divine service, where his name is, there is he. Before him, we acknowledge that we are sinners and we plead for forgiveness. His forgiveness is given to us. And we, freed and forgiven, acclaim him as our great and gracious God, as we apply to ourselves the words he has used to make himself known to us. So he brings us his name and all the promises attached to it, giving, it, giving them all to us freely. The rhythm of our worship is from him to us and then from us back to him. He gives his gifts and together we receive and extol them. We build one another up as we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Our Lord gives us his body to eat and his blood to drink. Finally, his blessing moves us out into our calling, our vocation in this world, where his gifts have their fruition as we love and serve our neighbor. As we, as remember after the end of the service of the sacrament, we're praying in the post-communion collect in faith toward you and in fervent love toward one another. How best to do this, we may learn from his word and from the way his word has prompted his worship through the centuries. We are heirs of an astonishingly rich tradition. Each generation receives from those who went before and in making that tradition of the divine service its own, adds what best may serve in its own day, the living heritage and something new. So that's kind of the idea behind the, the hymns and the liturgies of the divine service. But this picture of the Lord girding his loins and coming to us, not just on the last day, but even now, as he brings us his word and sacraments, God is making himself present and, and covering us in his gifts, serving us. And living in that, living in that constant rhythm of, of the expectation of Jesus coming to me and forgiving my sins, and I'm not, I'm not fearful of Jesus coming to me and forgiving my sins. That's the same, it's the same Jesus who comes in the last day. He comes and forgives my sins and brings me to heaven, right? Any, uh, I know we're kind of one minute past. Any quick questions? We actually finished the handout. This is phenomenal. You can take your handout. It's the first time for everything. I've only been a pastor for 11 years. First time. So we get a new handout next week. All right.
The Lord be with you.